Hi, this is Liz Tinkham, and welcome to Third Act, a podcast about people embracing the third act of their lives with a new sense of purpose and direction. The third act begins when your script ends, but your show's not finished. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Third Act. On today's show, I talk with Sherry Greco-Rikus. Sherry's adopted father gave her a great piece of advice earlier in her life. You can have anything you want, but you can't have everything you want. Sherry has taken that advice and used it as the foundation for how she advises her clients as the founder of Rappaport Rikus Capital Management. Her firm's motto, how can we help you maximize your return on life, builds on that early advice by helping clients figure out what their core values are and then balancing those wants against the values and their financial portfolio. While Sherry is still actively involved in running her firm, she's creating her own third act within the firm, distilling all the valuable lessons she's learned and giving them back through a blog, book, and podcast. Sherry, where do I find you today? I'm in my office in Skokie, Illinois, at Rappaport Rikus Capital Management. I was commenting because I was looking at you on the video that you are, you're about to start a podcast if you haven't already. You have, you look very professional, but you commented you could also do the weather with that as well. I could, I could (laughs) in the traffic, but we'll um, stick with the podcast today. Oh yeah. And you look great. But we were introduced by Athena's chief growth officer, Carol Winfrey, who, if I remember correctly, did you go to Illinois with her? Yes, we went way, way back. We were both accounting majors. We spent a lot of times in the stacks studying and oh, I remember we're like stack. soulmates. Oh yes. my gosh. I was telling one of my college age kids about the stacks. I said, you know, he's at Michigan State. I mean, you might go to the library and try the stacks. And he's like, what? He was having trouble focusing. I'm like, you know, the upstairs scary parts of the library where but it's really quiet. So I don't think he ever went. But let's go back to your first act, which was at Illinois. And what did you think you were going to do with your accounting major? Why'd you pick that? And what do you think you're going to do when you graduated? Yeah, sure. Well, my family was in the banking business and we had seven kids in our family and it was uh, we could go to any school we wanted to as long as it was Illinois. And my dad sat okay, me down one there, day up there. I could go to any school I wanted to as long as it was Ohio State. Okay. (laughs) Very similar. (laughs) Um, And, and so, you know, I had brothers and sisters, some went to Illinois state, some went to Illinois, but uh, one day I was, I worked at the bank in high school and my dad sat me down and he said, you should really be an accountant, even though you might want to get into banking one day, bankers are much better if they have an accounting background. So I decided to major in accounting and Illinois had a fabulous accounting program and the rest was history. Uh, You know, went, got my CPA. My family had community banks at the time. There were two. But again, my dad's advice. And again, this is my second dad. I'll probably talk a little bit later about my history. But he said um, it's better to get outside experience. So I went to Arthur Anderson and went in their financial services division and audited banks because I thought that would be a good background. And after three years, I went to the family bank. But there's another story there that for your listeners, that was kind of interesting. And I tell my kids this back at Illinois, there was a society called Beta Alpha Psi, which was the honorary society. And and to be a member of that, and Carol O'Reilly was, who we just talked about, you had to have a certain average. And there was a really tough accounting class. And I got a 79 
8.4, which ended up being a C, which eliminated me from being in this honorary society. And the honorary society had all the big eight at the time coming to interview and, and you really had an advantage. And I decided that there was, you know, probably 50 people in the society and there was another 350 accounting majors. So Neil Goldstein and I started the accounting club at Illinois. So you just went around it. We went around it and I had <laughs> Arthur Anderson as the sponsor. I called, I mean, I can't believe I was that young. I called Arthur Anderson, Gary Bue at the time. Yeah. And I said, will you sponsor this event? And he said, yes. And the accounting club is still going on. And for a long, long time, my name was on the website as, as one of the founders. So, oh, that's, that's so I always say, you know, to the young adults, if, if first you don't succeed, try again. And there's always a workaround. Yeah, exactly. Now, you mentioned um, your two dads, and I want to go back to uh, your childhood because you had a really interesting one with two very influential father figures who both positioned you to do what you're doing today. Can you talk a little bit about the two men and what you've learned from them? Sure. Yeah. My biological father, uh, Marty Bresloff, he was a CPA. And I remember um, even being young, I think six or seven, I'd go with him downtown on Saturdays because, you know, you had to work back then. And he had a little one of those 10 keys and I'd play around with the calculator and had a lot of fun. And he used to have a stamp pad and I'd play with that. But he passed away really young. He was 30 years old and he had been at a big accounting firm and just started his own firm about four years uh, before he passed away. So that was my first experience of, of an entrepreneur. But that also, the next experience I saw was my mom, who was only, you know, in her late 20s at the time, having to deal with all the finances and everything. Mm-hmm. of a, And it was me and my young brother. And I'll never forget those years. My mom went back to work and, and you know, we she never let us know really what the situation was, but it was it was very difficult. I always say my mom's a survivor. Yeah. Um, fortunately, a few years later, she got introduced to uh, Dante Greco, who actually ended up adopting me. My name's Sherry Greco Rikus. Mm-hmm. He was in the banking business. We call my mom the closer because she's only dated three men and married them all. Oh Met God. my first dad at you 16. <laughs> I, I, you know, some of my friends, you know, want to have lunch with her after they get divorced or something. But she <laughs> met my uh, first dad when she was 16. I think married him at like 19. And then oh she got God. fixed up with Dante and married him. And he was a unbelievable role model. Uh, when I was in high school, he put me through all the areas of the bank. We used to call it the one two punch. I'd be at school and hear someone was getting a new car and I'd call him and and have him call the family and try to get the loan. And, you know, at an early age, uh, he used to I used to process the loans and I'd have to pretend (laughs) if they get approved or not. And so, um, you know, it was a great experience when when I was. 14, he started his second bank group, Bank of Highwood was the first one, New Century Bank, which was out in Mundelein. And this was probably the biggest influence of my of my career is we went door to door to sell stock for the new bank. And so many times people said no. And I kept saying, don't you get discouraged when people say no? And he always said, you know, you need a lot of no's before you get a yes. If you don't have the no's, you'll never get a yes. So never be afraid of the no's. And I've never been afraid of it from that point. You went door to door to sell door stock. to door to sell stock from the community bank that was going oh in the community. Oh my goodness! Can you imagine doing that today? No, I mean, I know. 
And we sold the bank group in 1994, never paid a dividend. These people had tears in their eyes because they had no idea what that stock was worth. They just were supporting the community bank. You know, we're not talking a lot of money. Yeah. You know, hundreds and hundreds of people that bought stock, especially a lot of the immigrants from Highwood, the Italian yeah. uh, immigrants, they had bought stock. That was the first bank. My dad was Italian. His family came over from Italy to Highwood, and he just wanted to make sure there was a bank for the Highwood community. So it was really an unbelievable story from start to finish. But that was my first sales lesson. Never be afraid of the nose. When did you realize for both your dads that the kind of advice you were getting, which I think is fairly rare. I mean, my dad gave me great advice, but we certainly didn't go door to door. He was an insurance selling insurance or anything like that. You know, I think it's later in life. I mean, you, you know, you're so young and my, my gift for going with him was we would go for pizza after. And I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. So, so, you know, you don't realize it, but there's another quick story that really had a big influence on how I raised my family and how I really have, um, which we'll talk about the book in a few moments. And I dedicated it to my dad. But uh, when I was 16, um, my dad said for every dollar that you earn, he would, I earned, he would double it. So I I got three jobs that summer. I was (laughs) selling pizza at night. I was waitressing in the morning. I worked at a yogurt store and he ended up taking that money and we bought a few shares of the bank stock. Mm -hmm. And that stock, again, you know, that was years before and we sold the bank. Really, I learned the compounding of of money and, and the investments. I spent a little bit of that money when I was 16. And I remember uh, Bruce Springsteen was coming to town. um, And I also wanted a pair of fry boots. And I only had enough money for one or the other. The other, right. And so, you know, I thought if I talked to my dad about it, he would say, you know, Sherry, I'll, I'll get you the fry boots. You buy the Springsteen tickets. But that didn't happen. And I think today a lot of parents would do that. But he yeah. said he looked me in the eye and he said, you can have anything you want, not everything. So pick what's most important. And I ended up going to Springsteen. And I think since then, I've always been kind of an adventure. That's how I spend my money. But that was a lesson that I have really resonated with clients of mine. I've taught my children that I tell friends, I try to spend the message, you know, you can have anything you want, not everything, just pick what's most important. Yeah. That's a great, another great lesson. So you talked about going to Arthur Anderson, then back to the community bank, then when, how did you get to working with your friend, Dave Rappaport and forming your own business? Talk about that. Yes. So Dave and I actually went to U of I together and we were friends there And we had our community bank and it was the heyday of mergers when we sold the bank. It was in 1994. Uh, We sold to First Colonial Bank, who sold to First Star Bank, who sold to Star Bank, who sold to U.S. Bank. So in about three years, I went through four mergers you know, five different reorganizations. I went from market president to president of private banking. And, you know, I loved I loved the bank. My dad had leukemia and he passed away. So he became president emeritus and I was president of the five banks for a while. There was a lot of publicity with that. And we had a lot of fun together. Yeah. But after all the mergers, 
what I realized is I love clients and I really wanted to get back into the business. And actually, as a kid, my dad would send me the stock prices. I used to pick different stocks and he would send it to my camp when I was at camp. Girls were getting magazines and I was getting (laughs) these little stock prices from the newspaper and I would chart them on, on my cabin. But anyway, to make a long story short, I decided I wanted to get into the investment world, make a career change. So I met with a lot of different firms. I called Dave Rappaport and he had been at Sanford Bernstein. He had started mm-hmm. at Goldman Sachs, went to Bernstein. So he kind of recruited me over to Bernstein. And I was at Bernstein for about three or four years when they uh, merged with Alliance Capital Management. And I said, oh, here it goes again. You know, when you when you don't own your own business, you never know what the future looks like. Yep. So there was a friend of ours was at Goldman Sachs and he had a big hedge fund and he was thinking of starting a private client business and, and asked if I wanted to run it. And I went over to Dave and we were talking about it one day and all of a sudden the light bulb went on and I said, why would I want to run someone else's business? Yeah. Why don't we start our own? And this was the days where a lot of people were monetizing. They were leaving one brokerage firm and going to another. And, you know, there was monetizing their book of business and the RIA business. This was in 2005 had just, you know, started to get steam. What's and RIA? I, uh, registered investment advisor. So oh, independent, okay. you know, so you've yeah. got the brokerage firms, you've got the banks, and then you have these independent registered investment advisors. And, I looked at Dave and I said, let's start our own firm. And we left on extremely good terms at Bernstein. And in fact, we still have great relationships. And there's times that they refer us business if they can't handle it for one reason or another. And so when back in 2005, Dave and I took the plunge. We say we were either really smart or not smart, but I think it all worked out. Um, And we've grown the firm and it's just been a fabulous ride. One of the things I find interesting about this, just given that you and I are about the same age, and I think it's unusual to have seen women go into business with a friend of theirs, mm-hmm. and then who, and then your husband came into the business right, as well. right. And so I think that's just—I mean, I think that's a fantastic story. So, how long have you had the business, and, and where are you headed with it? So we started the business in 2005, and my husband was an estate planning attorney for many years at a big law firm in Chicago, and we just were having so much fun. So he said, you know, we should join. He wanted to join us. So he's. it started where he ran compliance and operations. Dad, uh, Dave was more on the investment side, and I was on the new business development and marketing. So we kind of had our segregated duties. But again, in a small business, everyone does everything. So we started with the three of us. We hired our first associate, Karen Asbra. 16 years later, Karen is now our COO of the company. Uh, We have 13 people, of which six of our nine advisors are women. So 66%, which is... Yeah. Amazing. Um, I'm mean, actually I just saw the play six. I don't know if you saw that. Uh-uh. The six wives of Henry the Eighth. And I'm doing a blog on the six women <laughs> advisors at Rappaport Rikus because oh, it is so unusual. That That's, yeah, that is really unusual and great for women. Great, for great women. for women and great that we have a COO. And, and so by, you know, it, initially it was Dave, Stephen and I, you know, we kind of were making all the decisions, but having a dedicated COO was a big change for us in the last year. And then we've just been really growing rapidly. We've, you know, we're at four or 500 million. We 
bought another firm at the end of last year. We're about 850 million. If the market would cooperate a little more, we'd be <laughs> higher, but you can't control. You can only control what you tro- can control. And so what's really been great for me is I still work a lot with clients, but by having the COO and having Dave, you know, with the investments and Stephen with wealth transfer, it's given me time to really pursue things like writing a book and blog because I just want this message to re- reach more people yeah. than you know our 350 clients. So I've been speaking and writing, and it's you know after all these years of being in the trenches with the clients, it's been a lot of fun to share this wisdom with with a larger audience. You were telling me you're kind of calling it your third act within the capital Rappaport Rikers Capital Management. So what are you what are you planning to do? So you're not you're not leaving the firm yet, but you've oh, got no, 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 no. no. So you've got some uh some other things you talked about speaking, writing, what else are you gonna do? Yeah, I mean a big part is mentoring our younger advisors. Um the beauty of our firm is that when you become a client, you're a client of Rappaport Rikus Capital Management. Our management style is centralized, so our clients get the best thinking of the firm. We have we're family CFOs. We have a standard CFO checklist, and so really mentoring the advisors, making sure our clients will all get the Rappaport Rikus Capital Management experience. But what really has changed about three years ago, I went to a women's conference uh, with the firm Dimensional that we um, outsource a lot of our money management and. We spent a lot of time talking about values and so much of our industry is really about analytics and performance. And I really have shifted the firm. We call it Maximize Our Clients Return on Life and really how I work with clients. And it comes down to this whole values Mm -hmm. and values discussion and what's most important to you. How do you want to spend your time? How do you want to spend your money? And that has really been kind of a third act in this business to really bring the values to the forefront and, you know, do a lot of writing and a lot of speaking and really working with our clients to figure out their values. And if they have a significant other, are they in line with each other? Because Mm -hmm. money is a leading stress for a lot of relationships. I know. I was just, I was just listening to a podcast and they were talking about that, but they were, I love the pivot podcast with Kara Swisher and Scott. Galloway, they were interviewing this young woman who's a, she's on TikTok, Sherry, there you go, doing all kinds of financial videos. And she was, they were talking about the stress with marriage, but you recently published your book, Maximize Your Return on Life, Invest Your Time and Money, What You Value Most. I read it's great. Uh, So how did you, I mean, it's a lot to write a book. What prompted you to do that? And where are you headed with all of that? So I uh, started with a blog about three years ago, and the blog really got a lot of traction. And I was getting a lot of emails from people and, you know, people saying that they thought of the blog when they were making a life decision. And I decided to kind of take the blog to the next level. I've always wanted to write a book and it's not as hard as people think it is. There's a lot of hybrid options. I hired a publisher who also had editors. So I, you know, worked on chapter by chapter and then I would have them edited. I had an illustrator and I wanted to make this book very interactive with exercises. Thought I wanted to be the kind of book you could read a few chapters, put it down. And I really thought this book was going to resonate with the 50 plus because a lot of, especially with your podcast, a lot of people are thinking, you know, I'm 50, I'm 60, I've got 20, 30 
years. How do I want to spend it? What do I want to do? And I thought that this book would help with those decisions. But what I found was a lot of people were getting this book for their young adults. Yeah. Because there was so much in there. And I had one of my clients who was in his mid 80s called me almost in tears, said he wished he would have read my book about the values because he just worked way too hard and it ruined his marriage and his relationship with his kids. And that was really his value. And he thought work was the most important thing of his life and that he ended up buying the book for all his kids and grandchildren. And he's hoping that maybe they will make changes that he wasn't able to make in his life. I really wanted to spread the word on this. And so I think that's why I wrote the book, but it kind of took a life of its own once it got published. It, you know, I don't know if there's a lot of books like it out there, but it, it's really been a lot of fun. And so two, I'm going to talk a little bit about two things that resonated with me and maybe some of our listeners about the book. One, I do the whole values piece, which was, you know, write down, understand your values and then evaluate all of your financial decisions against those. Now that seems like a very obvious thing to do. But the stories you told, the way you wrote it down, I don't know that most people are doing that. And in fact, I'm going to give this book to my kids for that. I mean, I I assume is that did you learn that or is that something one of the dads taught you or, you know, how did that come to be with you? I think it was just over time. And the happiest clients I had through the years were the ones that really understood their values. And it wasn't always the wealthiest clients because, you know, you have a resource, you have your earnings, you have your savings, you have your investments, but it's what you do with those resources. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can, you, you could be a very, very wealthy client. You could spend a lot and not be happy. And so I started thinking about that. And then when I went to the seminar and I kind of, wasn't looking forward to it. It was a a three hour. They had candles. We did meditation. They had a (laughs) notebook. I was like, I know my values. Why am I doing this? But a few of them really surfaced that I I hadn't expected. Um, I was running our capital campaign for our synagogue, spending a lot of time on that. And people often ask me, you know, why are you doing this? Why are you spending? And then all of a sudden, when I looked at my values, it was community and uh, giving, you know, family and those were big values of mine. And that that's why I was doing it. And then, you know, another one that I kind of forgot about was adventure. When I was younger, you know, I used to do all these adventurous vacations. Time get, goes by and we've decided now that once a year we're going to do a backroads trip or we went hiking in, you know, Costa Rica, zip lining and mm-hmm. things like that. And so if I'm working with clients and I talk about values and I've never taken the time to really articulate my own values, then I think there's a lot of people that haven't. You know, I had one couple I talked with their values and they said they spent more time picking out the color of their last vehicle than ever talking about their values. (laughs) And, you know, I, I give clients like kind of this checklist and sometimes we compare it and it's often very surprising that they don't even know each other's values. You know, one, yeah. one wants a big home and one doesn't want to work so hard and yeah. they've never talked about it. And yeah. that can lead to a lot of stress. The second thing you write a lot about is time management. And again, mm-hmm. something that people talk about all the time, but you give some great examples about how busy you are. Now, again, it goes back to your values. As you think about sort of your third act, really focusing on your values. I mean, how do you advise this? We have a lot of really high 
people who've done very, very well, women in particular who listen to this podcast, how do you how do you teach people to say no? I mean, I found it to be a big problem since I retired. I, I was got I got really good at it at work because I was so focused on work, but I've kind of been in this say yes mode ever since I retired and it's killing me. And and I hear that with a lot of my retirees because they think they have all this time now. So mm-hmm. they end up joining boards or philanthropic activities. And sometimes, you know, they don't have their, you know, assistance or people helping them. And it ends oh, up no. being more stressful than it exactly. was when they were in corporate America. And things just don't move as quickly as corporate America. And you're working with volunteers and, you know, you can't order people around, not the order people around <laughs> no. in corporate America, but it, it ends up being stressful. But I, I kind of... I'm was guilty of that because I I love life and I want to do everything. But sometimes saying yes is saying no to something that you didn't realize in the future. So you commit yourself to being on a board and, you know, you want to go on a trip later on and you can't because you're committed to something. So, you know, I kind of use this. Is it something I really want to do? And does it is this aligned with my values before I say yes? Mm -hmm. And I really I never say yes right away anymore. People used to call me and ask me to to help out with something because I also know I'm the kind of person that does something 110%. So I'm not going to be on a board and just sit there. And so I really have to be passionate about it and it has to really be in line with my values. And I did reduce some of my board activities. I was on a lot of boards and spreading myself too thin. And one of my values personally was health. And as I'm getting older, I really decided that this has to be some time for me and I needed to spend time, you know, working out. And I took up tennis recently and I'm enjoying it. And, you know, there'll be plenty of time. I've given a lot to a lot of organizations, but I decided that I was going to limit myself to two and really decide which ones I wanted to be involved with be involved at a very deep level and not try to be there all the time for everyone. And it's very hard. I mean, you're still working full time, but to limit yourself to two, that's a really, that's a good thing to just say uh, two, I'm going to look at them against my values and, and really devote my time and energy to that. And then if one of them ends, you can pick another one, but not exactly. Yeah. And most of them do. They'll have four year terms or six years. And yeah, you also have to understand your values change over time. So Mm -hmm. you need to reevaluate that you know, during COVID, a lot of people's values changed. Yeah. And you really need to look at that and be true to yourself and really take the time to really dive into that. So one last thing on the book and your just your experience being a financial advisor, what are the, like the one or two things that, you know, and again, it'd be people who have done fairly well in life as they think about retiring, what do they get wrong? Well, obviously there's two prongs of it. The first is financial and, and, you know, they, So many people, I ask them, well, what do you spend? I get this blank look. So before, you know, the best time to really think about your retirement is not three years before you're retired. It's probably 15 years before. Okay. And really making sure that you're planning for the retirement, that you understand what your spending is and also understand your family needs. Often it might be a child that needs help, a parent. So, you know, really understand what all those expenses are and financially make sure that you're secure. And, and, you know, we do a lot of modeling for our clients and and make sure that you feel confident with that. But the other is, is what are you going to do with your retirement? I think that's a lot of, Mm -hmm. you know, your third act podcast is, do you have enough hobbies? Is there a nonprofit? Is there maybe a small business you want to start? What does your retirement look like the day 
after and try to visualize that. And mm-hmm. I think that's where I some of the mistakes people make. They're financially fine to retire, but they've never thought about what it will look like after. And mm-hmm. especially if they were energetic, they were an executive, they were working hard. There's got to be an outlet for them. They're not used to doing nothing. So it's my podcast. Yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. I've always called my vanity project to try and figure out what I'm going to do when I'm retired. So yeah. um, you've got a podcast coming up. Or have you launched it? Tell us about it. Yes, I'm starting probably it'll be mid to late June. It's called Maximize Your Return on Life. I'm going to be talking with real people with real stories Uh, how they've maximized your return on life. And I'm also going to be talking with people who can help people maximize their return on life. So it's kind of a new project that I'm just starting. You know, I've got a a bunch of guests lined up, but I'm really excited about it. And it's not celebrities. Like I said, it's just going to be real people with their stories. And I hope that people will resonate with a few of the guests, or maybe there'll be another guest that can give them some insight like your podcast, which I'd love to have you on at some point, um, how their third act can be. And um, there's, you know, I think there's people are, there's a lot of thought process that goes in before you retire. And, you know, it used to be you worked at a company for 50 years, got your gold watch and retired in Florida, but that's not what I'm seeing. Um, No. And and I'm often seeing that people don't want to retire. They just don't want to work as hard as they've Mm -hmm. been working. So how can they still get that intellectual curiosity and have the time to do the things they want to do? And that that's really where we try to help clients figure that out. And I bet your third act is, is helping people really with the trade-offs of that. Yeah. And just some ideas of different things you can do for sure. So I almost named this podcast, I'm Not Done Yet. What aren't you done with yet? You know, I, I think just trying, you know, we obviously have our clients, but I've always been one of those nurturing people and and try to maybe change some mindsets, whether it's young adults, I, I preach this. And I always say the key to financial happiness is living within your means. Oh, yeah. And that basically is, you know, spending less than what you have coming in. And if you do that, you can have an emergency fund, you can start your retirement, you could put money away in your 401k and, and the ducks all get in order. So I'm trying to spread the word on that. Uh, I've done a lot of education, again, for young adults. I've done a bunch of webinars. I was uh, asked to speak in Washington to Jumpstart Coalition, which was 500 teachers from across the country on the top 10 things every high schooler should know. I, I think a lot of this is not taught in high school and college, so I'm kind of on a mission to do that with my experience with my mom. I've uh, spent a lot of my career really empowering women to take control of their finances mm-hmm. and to, you know, a lot of women will be the sole, the sole, uh, you know, in charge of their finances. I call them women in charge, whether they're widowed or divorced. So, you know, I'm hoping that my blogs and the books, you know, can help people navigate this complex world of finance and financial planning. So that's kind of, um, you know, from going and being deep in the trenches, I'm, I'm just trying to broaden kind of my, my a, delivery. I mean, one of the things I love about your story is that, you know, you're still in your kind of second act, but you, you're sort of, you're taking, you're kind of changing it the way you want it to be as you look at the next sort of third act of that career, right? Which is 
probably you're probably still in growth mode and getting more clients and everything, but really being able to be a trusted advisor to this last, not last stage, but the retirement stage of, of people's lives and then getting out there and taking everything, you know, and teaching other people about it, which is a really cool thing to do. So congrats. And empowering us. our firm yeah. uh, with the same message. Cause our firm's tagline is maximize your return on life. Yeah. And really it's not just me, but it's the entire advisory team here is working with our clients to help them maximize their return on life. And, and yeah. it's, it's so gratifying because we'll get calls. You know, I, I went to Italy and I maximized my return on life or I used to sleep on my daughter's couch. You know, she just had a baby. I decided to get a hotel room down the road. It's been a lot of harmony for everyone. I've maximized my return on life. So it's kind of been this tagline. And I do think that if you kind of have that in your mind, you're going to make the right decisions. And, you know, it, it, a lot of people have trouble spending money. And I always, again, like I do with the time, I always say, is it within your budget? And is it within your values? If it is, go for it. Yeah. Don't feel guilty. And I always find the people that have the money have the hardest time spending it. And the people that don't have the money have the easiest time <laughs> spending it. So, you know, you got to live your life. And I, if I can change more people to do that, I'll feel really good about it. Oh, that's great. So thank you so much for being on the show. Where can our uh, listeners find you online? Sure. I have um, my website at sherrygrecorikus.com or you can go to rrcapital.com. That's our company website, LinkedIn, and and I'll be starting the Maximize Your Return on Life podcast uh, shortly. So Great. Okay. Well, we will put all that in the show notes. Thank you so much. Look forward to following you. Great. Thanks, Liz. And I, uh, I really am impressed with your podcast and I think you're going to be helping a lot of people because I have a lot of clients looking at their third act. So I'm so (laughs) glad to be a part of this and thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks for joining me today to listen to the third act podcast. You can find show notes, guest bios, and more at thirdactpodcast.com. If you enjoyed our show today, please subscribe and write a review on your favorite podcast platform. I'm your host, Liz Tinkham. I'll be back next week with another guest who's found new meaning and fulfillment in the third act of their life.